0: So welcome today to another thoracic special EPIPS podcast. Um, And today what we're going to talk about is congenital diaphragmatic hernias. Um, I have with me today Miss Dania Molisseri, who is a consultant neonatal and pediatric surgeon at Great Ormond Street Hospital. She has a special interest in both upper GI and thoracic surgery. And the aim today was for us to go through diaphragmatic hernias going back to the antenatal aspects of its management and then discussing things that we do um, postnatally, operatively, as well as uh, their follow-up and long-term management. Um, So welcome to our podcast.
1: Thank you, Hemanshu.
0: Um, So we'll start um, back in the antenatal clinic. So um, at UCLH, I know that you go to the fetal medicine clinic and you often are asked to see couples who have a uh, baby that's been diagnosed with a diaphragmatic hernia. So um, can you just talk us through what you say to the family and what your sort of thoughts are with this when you're discussing it with them?
1: Yeah. So first, I would explain the diagnosis of the congenital diaphragmatic hernia as having two main components. The first one would be, as the name says, the defect in the diaphragm itself, and I explain it as being the muscle which separates the chest from the abdomen and therefore results in herniation of what's in the abdomen into the chest. Um, The second part is the abnormal and underdeveloped lungs, Uh, which also results in the high blood pressure in the blood vessels supplying the lungs. And this part, I explained to the parents, is the main cause for most of the life-threatening problems in CDH. I would describe the presence or otherwise of any other associated factors that uh, we would look for in the scans um, and then proceed to a brief outline of expected plan in the three phases, antenatal, during delivery, and postnatal.
0: Mm -hmm. So if we take you back a little bit, so when you're speaking to the fetal medicine specialist, what information do you ask them specifically about the diagnosis?
1: So based on the prognostic factors that we want to talk about we are I would ask about uh, any significant cardiac anomalies any chromosomal anomalies that have been picked up and then about the observed to expected lung head ratio so these are the three things that i would want to know
0: Okay and if we twelve you mentioned about the um observed to expected lung to head ratio can you tell us a little bit more about that Yes
1: yeah. so currently in most of the UK centers the observed to expected lung head ratio would be measured using an ultrasound and this is the, this is measured as the, um, area of the, uh, of the, of, uh, contralateral lung, uh, over the area of, uh, circumference of the, uh, head, mm-hmm. uh, at the gestational age. And yep. that's why it's called an observed to expected sure. ratio. And we have the normal ones mm-hmm. for that to compare to. Yep. And this is, as far as we know, currently the best parameter that looks at lung hyperplasia and the mm-hmm. extent of that to mm-hmm. help. Give the prognostic value.
0: Okay, and um, what would you say with regards to the position of the liver? Is that of any importance?
1: So, uh, it, through literature, uh, we can see that the liver herniation has been a significant factor uh, in deciding prognosis as well. Whether it's an independent prognostic factor to observe and l- uh, expected mm-hmm. lung head ratio is what we cannot clearly mm-hmm. see. Mm-hmm. But uh, for uh, purposes of interventions, etc., the liver herniation has been used alongside mm-hmm. a poor lung-head ratio mm-hmm. uh, to act as a group of pro prognostic factors.
0: Okay. And does it matter whether it's right or left-sided? Uh,
1: again, going by literature, okay. the commonness being the left-sided mm-hmm. herniation. But again, it, I, I do not see enough okay. in evidence to say it's that clearly independent prognostic
0: factor. Okay, okay. And if we go back to then the three phases that you mentioned in terms of what would happen for the rest of the pregnancy and thereafter, can you just dwell a little bit more on that?
1: So during the rest of the pregnancy, I would uh, uh, advise that they would have more regular scans Mm -hmm. every two or four weekly at least, during which uh, the factors which are being monitored are are still how the overall um, features of the fetus are. And in particular, uh, planning towards time of delivery, which would be about 37 weeks, they would look at where the delivery would be, and this would be planned to be in a level three neonatal centre.
0: Okay. Um, And are there any particular antenatal interventions um, that are used commonly either the UK or abroad? And can you just tell us a little bit about what their outcomes have been?
1: Yeah so the main antenatal intervention that we talk about in CDH is the fetal tracheal occlusion when it first came out um, uh, the fetal tracheal occlusion the the main publication uh, we know about is the NEJM paper from Harrison's group in 2003 this was terminated before completion because the survival in the control arm was better than anticipated and therefore benefit could not be observed by doing the intervention however the criteria for enro- enrollment in this trial was that the LHR was less than 1.4 with a liver herniation. Um, The intervention was also different in that it was maternal laparotomy and then hysteroscopic and fetoscopic insertion of the balloon. Following that, Romano uh, Romano and other groups have published further series and the RCT, which came out in 2012, with a very different inclusion criteria of the LHR being less than 1, Uh, with the liver herniation showed a significant survival benefit for the intervention in that you get less than 5% survival in the control arm with 50% survival in the intervention arm. Um, And in this one, the intervention was an ultrasound-guided insertion of the fetoscope into the amniotic cavity, then guided by fetoscopic vision into the fetal trachea to occlude the bronchus, Mm -hmm. uh, the trachea by a balloon. Mm -hmm. So the current international trial, which is ongoing, includes fetuses with, uh, again, uh, observed to expected lung head ratios, which are less than 25% in their severe arm. Mm -hmm. And there is another arm, which is 25 to 35% in the moderate arm, which Mm -hmm. is the total, which is a tracheal occlusion to accelerate lung growth trial. Um, And the results are awaited, I think, in the next year or so
0: okay excellent um so we'll move forward a little bit to saying that the the neonate that you've cancelled has now been born but unfortunately they couldn't actually make it to the tertiary centre they were born in the local hospital prematurely at 35 weeks gestation um so what advice would you give to the neonate team uh, at the local hospital
1: so when we see them antenatally, we plan the delivery for about 37 weeks in the tertiary neonatal center. However, if there is an unexpected uh, delivery outside um, in, in another neonatal unit, uh, we would advise the neonatologist or pediatrician to electively intubate and ventilate the baby in certain nasogastric tube, try and uh, apply Uh, principles of gentle ventilation and i would strongly suggest they discuss with our neonatologist who has more experience with these babies Mm -hmm. Um, and the child has to be kept nailed by mouth um, with IV fluids and transport be organized to uh, an experience in natal center
0: so ideally as you said your preference would be is for them to be delivered at a tertiary center what facilities or, or aspects of it do you feel are important for for that to be mandated as sort of being the ideal
1: so the, the real requirements is about the neonatal unit being comfortable and confident with managing these uh, from a physiological point of view more than the surgical aspects. So they need to be equipped with the experience uh, looking after gentle ventilation and not uh, co- uh, chasing uh, the PCO2 and PO2 values and causing barotrauma, which can increase further the pulmonary hypertension. Um, and... That would be my rationale for asking for these babies to be transferred to a neonatal tertiary center, which is experienced with managing them. Most of them are either co-located or or close enough to a pediatric surgical center Mm -hmm. as well. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay. Um, And so again, you know, previously there used to be this dogma that a baby with a diaphragmatic hernia was born and they would be rushed straight to the operating theater. You'd correct the defect and then see how the infant progressed. But There clearly has been a shift in that management. And and so can you tell us a little bit more about what do you feel is or what parameters are important in determining the timing of surgery? And why is it that we now no longer advocate just rushing straight to theatre?
1: So surgical intervention is now, as you say, very well understood to be a non-urgent and a secondary intervention after the baby is stabilised in a physiological manner. Um, In my view, the optimum time and age for surgery would be when the baby is as stable as possible. And I would decide this in conjunction with the neonatologist and the anesthetist by assessing for one hemodynamic stability with minimum or no inotropes. Two would be the um, extent of managing pulmonary hypertension, which is well controlled, needing minimal medications uh, and three would be the baby being able to maintain reasonable gases with conventional ventilation without needing high pressures or high frequency oscillatory ventilation. Those are the parameters that I would use. Uh, and I say I would use it with the neonatologist to get a gauge of when do we think collectively the baby's ready to go for operation.
0: Okay. Um, So, so say, suppose you're in that situation where the baby's born, but as you say, from a respiratory point of view, they're not stable, they're actually needing uh, additional support, may that be inotropes or high-frequency ventilation, and then it's deemed that actually the pulmonary hypertension is becoming more difficult to manage, and there's a, a discussion at the time about the potential use of ECMO. So, could you just tell us a little bit about the use of ECMO in the context of diaphragmatic hernias?
1: Yes, so the use of the role of ECMO in diaphragmatic hernia is still argued. Uh, The only RCT to date uh, was the one which was done in the UK, which actually did not show a significant improvement in survival in the ECMO However, the more recent studies, um, although they are not RCTs, do suggest that there may be a role for ECMO in a selected group of uh, patients uh, with CDH. So the survival for CDH patients who have ECMO has not actually improved through the past decades, and it stays at about 50% as per the most recent uh, data from the ELSO, the Extracorporeal Life Support Organization. The criteria used to initiate ECMO in CDH varies between centers and also across countries. And in the UK, the most commonly used criteria are that oxygenation index of over 40% for two to four hours. For, uh, pre-ductal saturation is less than eighty-five percent, despite optimizing medical management uh, for managing the pulmonary hypertension. Mm-hmm. A combined metabolic and respiratory acidosis, uh, suggestive of poor tissue perfusion, with a high PCO two and a pH of less than seven point one five, lactate of four or five. Uh, these are the more common ones mm-hmm. that are generally used in the UK.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and then you come into the role of. Uh, In the UK, there are dedicated ECMO centres and Mm -hmm. we would have a discussion with the ECMO centre with these criteria to decide if they are amenable for. And the main point used for decision uh, by the centres is usually reversibility Mm -hmm. being a factor. And if it is reversible, the consideration is given for ECMO
0: okay. So here at Great Truman Street, there is ECMO availability. And you get a patient who, as you said, you've been following them through, they're now actually onto the CICU and they are getting ECMO. And the consultant now phones you and says, okay, they're on ECMO, when do you want to operate? What would you say to that?
1: So, my preference would be to perform the repair of the CDH after they come off ECMO. Mm-hmm. This is based on the ELSO review, which showed that there is a three times increased mortality in children, and babies who have the surgery mm-hmm. during ECMO. However, I do think that there are instances when there is an indication to do it on ECMO. And the main argument would be that it could be done uh, to say that if the baby cannot come off ECMO even after the repair, we have used up all the avenues. Before we draw in care. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so we'll, we'll move on, I guess, from their, um, preoperative stability now. And we'll talk a little bit about the surgery itself. So, um, again, you know, we're all aware that there are several different approaches or strategies in performing the operation itself. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about what current surgical options there are to, to actually do the operation? And then tell us a little bit about your preferred approach.
1: Uh, The options available are an open approach through the abdomen, um, a thoracoscopic or laparoscopic approach. My preferred approach is a thoracoscopic approach uh, in stable neonates if there is agreement from the neonatology and the anesthetic teams. Mm -hmm. In the others, I would do an open repair through an upper transverse laparotomy. Mm -hmm. I do counsel the parents about the uh, different approaches and uh, inform them that my preferred approach is this. However, I do also mention that going through literature, the RCTs, and particularly the older studies, do uh, suggest a higher recurrence rate mm-hmm. in the thoracoscopic and minimally invasive approach. However, the more recent series, although they, again, they're not RCTs, do suggest comparable recurrence rates, mm-hmm. all running under about 5%. Okay.
0: Um, so, if you were to do this operation open, we'll just do that bit first. Um, Have you got any particular tips that you'd like to to mention in terms of trying to achieve a good repair? Uh,
1: I think the the first point would be making sure that your access is adequate and you can have a proper visualization Mm -hmm. of the whole diaphragmatic rims. Mm -hmm. So you enter the abdomen and reduce all the contents back into the abdominal cavity or even outside the abdominal Mm -hmm. cavity if need be. Examine for the presence of a sack, particularly when we're going through the abdomen. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'd take the remove the sack um, and uh, after that define the rims very clearly mm-hmm. uh, so that the repair you can then decide whether there is an adequate rim to mm-hmm. see if they can be a primary repair mm-hmm. or the use of a patch. Okay. Um, and then when you come to the patches, there are several choices, but our preferred choice in Great Oman Street would be to use a uh, polyester Mm non-absorbable patch that we suture with choline interrupted Mm -hmm. sutures. Mm And in the areas where the diaphragm is particularly absent or thin, mm-hmm. uh, there may be instances where we have to use part of the chest or abdominal wall itself mm-hmm. and occasionally go around the ribs as well with the sutures.
0: Okay. Um, what do you do in terms of, if it's again an, an open surgery, in terms of assessing the um, orientation of the gut in terms of rotation? Do you specifically try and look at that and correct it if you think it's abnormal?
1: We know that all of these uh, babies will have non-rotation because mm-hmm. they've never returned and mm-hmm. been fixed to the appropriate mm-hmm. position. Mm-hmm. But I do not uh, necessarily go and look for, because they're not likely to be mal-rotated either mm-hmm. because they mm-hmm. have not come back into mm-hmm. the abdomen. The incidence of mal-rotation and even volvula secondary to rotational anomalies in diaphragmatic hernias are mm-hmm. very low in mm-hmm. the published literature. Therefore, I do not actually... Intervene or do anything Mm -hmm. for uh, exploring the rotation at that first Mm -hmm. operation. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay, and then you mentioned about um, using a patch. So, um, what would be your sort of, I mean, clearly, if there's a very big defect and you're just unable to get get it together, that's one reason why you might want to use it. But what else do you do, say, thoracoscopically, to assess whether you think, actually, no, I think this one's going to do with the patch, or, you know, actually, I'll just put stitches? Is there anything you do?
1: Uh, Having more recently having seen uh, different uh, approaches mm-hmm. in the thoracoscopic and use use of patches, uh, I have now come in my mind, to a decision that actually use of a patch itself, it's not a bad thing per mm-hmm. se, as opposed to, you know that the literature talks about increased rates of recurrence mm-hmm. if you use a patch. Mm-hmm. But the use of patch is probably not what decides the recurrence, probably because the reason why the patch has been used. Yeah. So, in fact, using an appropriate patch which is loose, loosely uh, attached enough mm-hmm. to have the dome mm-hmm. um, roughly replicated would be preferable to having a primary very tight uh, uh, repair, mm-hmm. so I now have a lower threshold mm-hmm. to uh, use a patch mm-hmm. as long as it is an appropriate size of the patch.
0: Okay okay um fine, so we'll we'll come on towards the the end bit of this now, so the the baby's had their surgery they've had feeds and, and they've done well, they've been discharged from hospital, um, perhaps just before leaving from hospital or when you see them in the clinic for the first time, what sort of things are you now looking out for in this patient and telling parents about potential problems that may arise?
1: Yes. You're right. There are a few things that we you sh- should always talk to them about, uh, and, and if not at the time after surgery, then probably when they come back to clinic. And the list includes uh, things like gastroesophageal reflux, mm-hmm. failure to thrive, small bowel obstruction, and respiratory problems. Mm-hmm. The gastroesophageal reflux disease is reported in up to 80% of patients in this group in the first year particularly. Obviously, the reconfigured anatomy does not give the normal angle of his, mm-hmm. so that is a, a big component of why it happens. Um, the most, if not all, babies with CDH, I do think, will need anti-reflux medications at least for part of that first year of their life. Mm-hmm. I personally place them all on anti-reflux medications um, and then uh, plan to do any surgery for reflux only if there's a failure to respond to mm-hmm. maximal medical therapy. Um, they need a close eye on their feeds and their growth because 20 to 30% will have failure to thrive, which can go beyond infancy as well. Then there is a the small bowel obstruction, which is reported in up to 20%. Most of them are due to adhesions, but mm-hmm. there are a few which have been noted due to rotational mm-hmm. problems and volvulus The respiratory problems are also common in this group due to primarily the hyperplastic lungs Mm -hmm. and all the interventions that have been done during the ventilation Mm -hmm. episodes, the mechanical results of that. Then there is the hyperreactivity of the airways Mm -hmm. as the uh, babies grow, Mm -hmm. uh, increased respiratory infections. Um, So I would recommend a respiratory review for Mm -hmm. these children um, and lung function tests for Mm -hmm. them as they grow towards, as they achieve almost no, Full development of their lungs around the age of seven or eight. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. I refer them to the respiratory specialist for Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Along with this, there's also then the spinal and chest wall anomalies, Mm -hmm. um, which are higher in this group. So, I'm primarily uh, as an associated disorder with the C D H, but some secondary to the traction applied to the hemithorax or Mm -hmm. the whole thorax while Mm -hmm. we're doing the sutures, particularly Mm -hmm. in those with a patch Mm -hmm. repair, and Mm -hmm. they have been reported up to ten to fifteen percent in that group. Mm Uh then last but not least important is the neurodevelopmental mm-hmm. delays, which are reported to be higher in the children who have had c d h repair. Uh, there is some recent evidence associating the extent of period of supported ventilation mm-hmm. to the extent of neurological problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, both neuro- neurodevelopmental delays and the sensory neural hearing loss are reported to be higher in the children mm-hmm. who have had ECMO, so mm-hmm. that's an additional effect mm-hmm. of having had the ECMO as well. So, in brief, these are the yeah. list of things that I would always go through with the parents when they come for... a post-operative
0: clinic review right so lastly just something potentially a little bit controversial but what do you think about considering centralizing the management of diaphragmatic hernias particularly in the in the region that we are in the southeast of england where there are quite a few centers do you think that it's appropriate or okay for all the patients to be operated on in this 12 centers that we have or do you think it would be better to consider trying to get them into fewer centers
1: uh no, it is, like you say, a tricky question. Mm-hmm. Um, if you base it on literature, um, there are two reasons you may want to centralize things. One may be because you want to uh, bring the expertise together. Mm-hmm. Uh, surgical expertise, this is not a technically difficult operation, so it does not for that reason need to be centralized mm-hmm. to be given only to s- certain centers. Mm-hmm. However, it does, it should be done in centers with the multidisciplinary support of like I said in the long term this is not just an operation on the diaphragm Mm -hmm. it is a combination of a hyperplastic lung Mm -hmm. with the features of potential pulmonary hypertension with the long-term effects on the growth the development of the lungs and the bowel and a center which has the ability to have multidisciplinary clinics going into from infancy to childhood Mm -hmm. and to then uh, transition them into adulthood mm-hmm. would be ideally set up for that. So I wouldn't say it needs to be in a specific center, a center, mm-hmm. but a cent- any center which can do that, manage the multidisciplinary setup mm-hmm. um, and have that expertise brought in together would yeah. be ideal for
0: that. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Thank you very much for your time again today. And we look forward to having you back on our EPIP series.
2: Thank you, much.